0: Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My guest on this week's episode is Chris Croft, one of the UK's leading business trainers. Today, Chris has trained some 87,000 people face-to-face and over 6 million people online. He's also a successful author. His first book, Time Management, was published in 1996 to widen acclaim and has since followed this with 14 other publications. It is Chris's expertise in time management, personal growth, and achieving true happiness that we're going to discuss in this podcast. During the course of the discussion, we also hear about Chris's personal journey and some of the lessons he's learned along the way. Chris is a really passionate, energetic and expressive individual who I've known for more than 20 years and I'm sure you'll enjoy his stories and his outlook on life. Amongst other things, Chris talks about the impact of Paul influencing when managing
1: people, You know, if you force people to work, when you're not there, they'll stop working. Whereas if you can get them to care, then they'll do it even when you're not there. Discusses the challenges and value of effective delegation. So if they can do it 80% as well as you, you should give it to them. And just don't look at that last 20%, just think it's good enough. And then they'll get to 90, 100, they'll probably get to 120, which will feel great. And tells us
0: the important lesson he learned at his Cambridge University reunion
1: so i was fascinated to see the you know the cream of england's education <laughs> and there they were not particularly successful monetarily and not particularly happy either to find out more about Evolve, go to
0: evolvemembers.com but for now let's get on with the show
1: Hello, Chris. Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Hello, Warren. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, it was great to have you on the podcast. And I was reflecting when I first met you, Chris, and I'm thinking of us both now. Although you don't, you haven't looked at your look hasn't changed in the 20 years since I first met you, Chris. Is it, is it 20 years? Yeah, I met you. I was at Grant Thornton, so I was in my corporate days, and you came into Grant Thornton on a strategic away day and gave us uh, training and coaching around team engagement, how to work better as a team, and also around sales training. So that's when I first met mm. you, and I can't believe it's 20 years ago. As I was driving into work today, I reflected on it, it was 20 years ago. So for our listeners, Chris, do you want to tell them a little bit about Chris Croft and your journey? Well, what,
1: a, what, what a you question. start? Yeah, yeah, how much <laughs> detail do you want? Chris Croft. Yes. Age 60. I can't believe I'm saying that. I'm still 12 in my mind. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, so I started out as an engineer. I did a degree in engineering at Cambridge, which was um, good. Carol Vorderman was my lab partner. Okay. We were all in love with Carol. Wow. I don't think she'd remember me, but I remember (laughs) her. Um, But apart from Carol, I, I didn't really enjoy engineering. I was a terrible engineer. I mean, engineers are very good at detail and I just I I only did it because I happened to be good at maths and couldn't think of what else to do and I think at that age you're just thinking what on earth shall I do as my career
0: yeah
1: and so I picked it and then went to work for Westland Helicopters because helicopters are kind of fun and interesting things and I was an apprentice there, and I worked in all the different departments and had this increasing sense of desperation as I didn't fall in love with each department. It was going to be
0: a department. The next one I'm going to love. Yeah, and I just thought it has got to be
1: something. Um, I mean, helicopters are brilliant and beautiful, but the design office, my plan was to design helicopters, and I thought, in the first week, I'll do a normal one, get my eye in. in the second week, I'll do a double-decker. You know, third week, I'll do one shaped like a fish or something. <laughs> and I discovered that they do, they make one new helicopter design every 10 years. And it takes 300 people 10 years. Wow! And if you're lucky, by the time you get to the third one, you might be in charge of, you know, the back wheel or something. Right. And I, I just thought, sod that. That I wasn't going to hold your attention. No, and... And I remember, you know, the technical drawing exam we had to do at university. We had to do three drawings in three hours. And so we did a drawing per hour as our, for the exam. And when I got to Westlands the first morning, I did four drawings before lunchtime. And this old bloke came over and said, you're one of them troublemakers, aren't you, from university? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, in this office, we do one drawing a week. So you better <laughs> not cause any trouble. trouble. And I went, all right, then. So each week I used to do my drawing between nine and ten on Monday morning. And then I used to just skive the rest of the week. Wow. And I used to sleep in the waste paper skip with my <laughs> shirt off and things. It was just, and I just thought, I can't be in a drawing office where you do one drawing a week. I just can't. Just. But I eventually found production. Okay. And that was exciting because everything was going wrong the whole time. And everything was always late. And I became fascinated with why can't they make a helicopter on time?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, how hard can it be to have all the bits there, ready, and assemble it, and it be done. And it is actually really difficult for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> you think um, about that out as well, did you? Yeah, and computers were just being invented then because it was okay. like mid nineteen eighties, and and computers were going to save everything, except of course they didn't. No. and and it was so that was actually fascinating. So okay. just as a sort of something to be interested in, production is never boring.
0: No,
1: but then <clears throat> so I did that, and I moved jobs a few times, and I found myself in charge of about two hundred people who all called me sir and things. And it was just weird. And I remember thinking, you know, because power doesn't really do anything for me at all. And I just thought, why do I want to be in charge of 200 people? And they all bring you their headaches every day. And every day somebody turns up drunk and somebody has a fight and a machine breaks down and you run out of material and a supplier lets you down. And I just thought, do I want to spend my whole life, you know, wading through poo? Really, it was kind of how it felt. In summary, how you got to. And and I had two horrible bosses in a row who used sort of fear as a way to motivate. And I'm fairly immune to other people. I don't really care what they think or say, usually. But it's amazing how a bad boss can get to you if they constantly grind you down. We all remember them, don't we? Yeah. I mean, one of them used to... I was... Running a company in Wales and used to phone me up from head office in Northampton and call me an, an effing Welsh B. And uh, I'm not even Welsh, but you, <laughs> Welsh. it was a chat. bit of your history and, that I wanted to explore yeah, then. No, I didn't think you were Welsh. Because I was working in Wales, I was sort of lumped in with, oh, you. Bloody... And he would, and it was the early days of mobile phones, okay. and he would be swearing at me from. From some motorway somewhere, you know, and he'd go dead every time he went under a motorway bridge and he'd be back. You better effing sort <laughs> out that effing problem. And it's amazing how that does gradually get to you. And he used to threaten to fire me every month. He'd yeah. say, if you don't reach the numbers, you're, I'm going to sack you. And then we didn't because there were loads of problems in his company. Yeah. I'd just taking it over. I was trying to sort it out. Um, no time to do it. No money to invest. And it was just pretty much impossible. Yeah. And he would just shout and swear at me over the phone. And... So after I left that job, I went to work for Dolphin Packaging and Pool, which was a similar nightmare. Uh, And so um, after both those jobs, I just thought, I don't want to spend my whole life doing this. And surely there's something better. And there was a job advertised at Bournemouth University as a lecturer in operations management, which was what I knew about. And oddly enough, my next door neighbour brought the paper around and said to me, look at this, Chris, here's the perfect job for you. I didn't even like my next door neighbour. I never really spoke to him. But for some reason, he brought the paper around said, look at this. And I said, well, I I can't be a lecturer. I don't have a qualification in teaching. He said, you don't need one. And I was like, really? He said, go and be interviewed. Try it. So I did. I just, I don't know. I just did what he told me, which was really odd. and And I got the job. And so suddenly there I was as a university lecturer on quite a lot less money but a lot more holidays. Yeah. And it was such a fun job. And it was like finally discovering the thing you were born to do. And I do actually believe that there is an ideal job out there for everyone. And you've got to keep trying to find it. Only one? Um, I don't know if there's only one ideal job. And I don't know if there is a job for absolutely everyone. But I think for a lot of people there's at least a better job than the one they're doing, something that they feel passionate about yeah, and engaged and, with and, and yeah. I think there, I, because the job I do now, where I go around and do training courses and I see probably three thousand people a year, I see a lot of people who and and they open up to me on courses and they tell me stuff you know and you get a lot of people who they're, They don't hate their job. I mean, some people hate their job and do nothing about it. But a lot of people just settle for a job that's sort of okay because they have to pay the bills. And they just and I just think you're spending five days a week doing a job and you've got to find a job that you love. Mm. And the search must go on. And it took me years to find the ideal job for me, which I'm lucky enough to have found. But I don't think it is luck. I think it was because I was sort of relentless enough to keep looking. Or oh, stupid enough, because I did get made redundant three times. Because <laughs> <laughs> the guy in Wales, uh, eventually, they closed the whole company down.
0: Right. Just wasn't going to turn around. Yeah, they got happen. me to
1: get rid of everyone, and then they got rid of me. But I'm glad, because that moved me from Wales to here. And nothing wrong with Wales. It's beautiful, actually. Yeah, the people were really country. friendly. But um, But it moved me to here, which has been a great place to be here in yeah. Bournemouth um and then dolphin packaging also ended in he just I, I argued every step of the way with the boss because i believed he was wrong about lots of things right so you know he used to just fire people if he didn't like the look of them and and i would oppose that and say no he's a really good guy you know he'd go no i don't care get rid of him right um furk him off is the expression he used to use just furk him off chris right and i'd be, wow. be really old school oh it was really old school i mean we used to run the machines with, the, I'm sure they don't do it now, legal disclaimer, but we used to run the machines with the guards off because it was quicker mm-hmm. and people's fingers used to get cut off. I mean, it was literally that crazy.
0: And oh, I God. fought
1: him every step of the way. I totally disagreed with him about all sorts of things. I used to put a notice up once a week to tell the guys in the factory what was going on in the company about, we're hoping to get a new order, we're buying a new machine, etc. Yeah. Just good and,
0: communication.
1: Yeah. And he said to me, don't put the notice up. Because they don't need to know. And they'll only find a way to use it on us. And I disobeyed him. So I used to put the notice up in the evening after he'd gone home. So the evening shift could see it. Then the night shift would come in and see it. And then the morning shift would come in at 6am. And they had instructions to take it down after they'd read it. Because he used to get in before me. Right. So they would take the notice down. (laughs) So all of my guys could read my notice. And the boss never knew. And if he found that out, he probably would have fired me. Yeah. But I felt that strongly about communication. Yeah, definitely. You know, it was just a part at the heart of everything. And I don't think any business can take or operate yeah. without strong and, and meaningful and communication. And it's never good enough. Whenever you ask somebody, what's the, the one thing in your company that should be better? They always say communication. Yeah. So I really believe in that. And he never discovered I was doing that, but I fought him every step of the way. And, and in the end, after a couple of years, he said, Chris, do you want to just have six months money and go and i went yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then the university and i went to work for the university which was so much better it was a a joy working there i mean there was a certain amount of politics and stuff that was boring but the teaching was i just loved it right and it was partly teaching on the mba course uh teaching operations management and partly teaching local businesses for a day so we would go out and do a day of something like time management for somebody like grant thornton okay and that's how it started so that second redundancy I'm eternally grateful for because it got me out of running factories and into training. Right. Um, and otherwise, I'd still be there. I'd still be running that factory, almost certainly, because I wouldn't have had the guts or the vision yeah. to leave and do something totally different. Um, it usually
0: is a critical event. It's something that yes. happens, isn't it? And certainly, so I, means you end up doing what you're doing. So at what point yeah. did you think the university lecturing wasn't your thing? And by the um, time I met you 20 years ago, you were a Chris croft trainer. Well...
1: Well, what happened was I had gone from forty grand to twenty grand back. This is twenty years ago, so I'd halved my pay because I just thought something's got to change. I'm going to start a new career, which takes a bit of yeah. courage, I guess. Yeah, I
0: assume you had a family because you got children. Yeah, I've yeah, got at that two time. kids, mortgage,
1: yeah. wife, dog, responsibilities in that yeah. order, <laughs> and um, and I was eating into my savings every month by a little bit. And I started to do the occasional training day on the side, okay. which was not allowed, but everyone did it. It was like an unwritten rule yeah. that that's how, you, that's how they could employ good people on such low pay. Yeah. It was an unwritten rule that you could do a little bit of plan. private work, yeah. a bit of consultancy. And it didn't harm the university at all. So I started doing the occasional day of training. Just I'd take a day of holiday and just go and do a day of training and then just sort of... Write some sort of invoice on a bit of paper and they would send me money. And yeah. I wasn't self-employed or anything. I didn't really know what to even do with the money. You know, I didn't have a company name or a bank account. Or it was just sort of weird. But I had to do something just to survive, really. And and I remember at the time we were charging a thousand pounds a day to do a day for, let's say, Grant Thornton which was you know going rate probably you've got yeah. 10 people on there it's 100 quid ahead or 20 people it's 50 quid ahead it's nothing yeah so we were charging a thousand and i was doing 100 days of training and i was being paid 20 grand so i was being paid 200 a day yeah. and the university was charging a thousand and i thought hmm mm. there might be an opportunity yeah. i yeah. thought if i <laughs> if i was self employed and i charged like 6 or 700 yeah i'd be competitive and i thought if i did 700 days Oh, sorry, 700 pounds, and I did 100 days. I'd make 70 grand, yeah. and, and that totally blew my mind. That thought yeah. that I could earn 70 Doing grand loved. doesn't blow my mind. Yeah, doesn't blow my mind now, but back then, yeah. I just thought, Oh my god, I could do this. So I actually wrote resign. Um, in my diary. I planned when I was going to leave. Right. Um, I, I is that know, the I... engineer in you? Do you think yeah. there's a bit of you that is still very methodical? <laughs> I am still a bit of an engineer, yeah. <laughs> I think, in terms of my thought process. I want to understand everything, and that's okay. what engineers do. Yeah. And then I want to gradually improve everything, which is what engineers do as well. Yeah. Um, e- engineers are really great people, and they've created the whole world. Yeah. Although they're a, they're a pain in the arse to train, though. Yeah, Uh, because they want to know the infinite detail. Yeah, and how do you know that's right? And what about that? The only people who are harder are lawyers, by the way, because they're designed to argue (laughs) and designed to find the one flaw in your (laughs) argument. (laughs) But yeah, so once an engineer, always an engineer, I think. Yeah. so You'd written Resign in your diary. I'd written Resign in my diary. And actually, I used to cycle to work if the weather was nice. And I got knocked off my bike by a car, which turned right and ran me over. Wow. and there was all this blood and my arm didn't feel very good and my bike was all bent and this ambulance turned up and they took me to Pool Hospital and um, the ambulance guys were like, you're Chris Croft, aren't you? And I was like, yes, I was in agony. <laughs> you did a training course for us. I was like, was it any good? And they went, yeah, it was really good. I was like, oh. And uh, anyway, so I turned out I'd broken my shoulder, my right shoulder actually. I'm pointing right. to the wrong shoulder as we do this. <laughs> yeah. Our oh, uh, listeners can't uh, see that. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't have to say that. <laughs> yeah, and so I... For the last sort of um, couple of months of my employment, I had my right arm in a sling. And it was a lovely hot summer. And I could have just taken two months off, sick. Yeah. But I didn't. Like an idiot, I honoured every training course I had booked. And I yeah. did them all. I wrote left-handed That's... on the flip chart, really bad writing. I yeah. drove illegally, just left-handed, just changing gear and steering. And, you know, because my right arm was in a sling. Right. But I had to get to the customer. And I was committed. Be... Yeah. yeah. And... What an idiot. Because then, just when my arm was better, they called in this meeting and they said, really sorry, everyone. We're making you redundant. And I thought, that's what you get for loyalty. Yeah. You know, and I learned a lesson then, actually, that your boss may love you, but your boss's boss doesn't really care about you. And your boss's boss's boss doesn't even know you exist. Right. You're just a number. And I know that's very cynical, but i am It I've is a very that. cynical view. Yeah. And obviously, I th- hope I cared about my people. Yeah. Lay us down. Yeah. But but that was possibly why I wasn't a great manager. I don't yeah. know. And but then you know we're into do the good guys win or the bad guys win, don't we? And I've been teaching good management, yeah. I hope, for years now. But I do see quite a lot of bad managers still. You know, people who use fear yeah. and things. And but so I think there is that uh, corporate mentality. You know, it's one of the reasons
0: I left and set up Inspire. So I wanted to treat my people how I'd want to be treated. Yeah, but and but you're unusual, fairly. aren't you? And instead of being dictated to so I think there is some truth yeah there is definitely some truth in what you say Chris because yeah. there is that dictation of how you'll deal with your people and how things will be dealt with and how yes. you recruit people and for me I always had that passion I wanted to get out and, I, I think, and do it my way and treat people as human beings.
1: I think good managers can succeed but I also think bad managers can succeed but I also think maybe in the long run you You've got to have creativity and yeah. you can't do it all yourself. You've got to get it from your people. Yeah. And therefore, they've got to believe in what they're doing. So if yeah. you force people to work, it's all right if they're doing a routine task, like turning yeah. a handle on a machine. But if you want creativity, you, you've got to inspire your people, yeah, haven't you?
0: definitely. And,
1: and actually, even in something like a factory where you're turning handles, you've still got to keep ahead of your competition. You've got to keep improving. You've got to keep having ideas. Okay. And you can't have them all yourself. No. So it is madness to be... You know, a horrible manager, but we've all seen so many. We have. And I've had more than half of my managers have been really bad managers, really. So so anyway, so I was made redundant the third time. (laughs) And and that was the week before I was going to resign. But what I'll never know is whether I would have actually had the guts to resign and go Uh, self-employed. Because it's quite possible if I hadn't been made redundant the third time. I'd still be at the university, still lecturing. And, yeah, because you know, clearly you're committed to enjoy that, role. It, but yeah. I'd probably be on 25 grand now on yeah. 20, <laughs> um, or even 30. But yeah, because I did enjoy it. So my three redundancies took me from Wales to here, from manufacturing to teaching, and from teaching to being self-employed. And yeah. I can't thank those three people enough. Everything happens um, for a reason. In yeah, five years. And, and the reason I wanted to say about this was that if you are ever made redundant... Don't worry about it because it it will probably lead to something better Hmm. because at least something different. And then it's what you make of it. And, you know, I would still be in Wales or I'd still be running that factory in Bournemouth with the guards off or I'd still be teaching at the university. I think if I hadn't because I think I don't think I've got the guts to just give up a job and go and do something totally different. I mean, not many people have, Hmm. but I was pushed. But I, at least because I argued and was a pain and stood up for myself <laughs> yeah. in those various jobs. And I think you've got to stand up for what you believe in, in whatever yeah. you do, because you've got to live with yourself, haven't you? Yeah. Um, you've got to have a conscience. Yeah. You? But I am eternally grateful that that sort of process of, of you know, pushed me on to the endless search to find the right thing for me. But I did start to think, you know, is there something wrong with me? Or am I not a very good person? Even though I always worked really hard in those jobs right. and, and I think I'm probably quite clever. So, you know, clever and hardworking, what's not to like? Yeah. But I did start thinking, you know, am I too abrasive? Because I do argue, if I don't agree with something, I'll say so. Yeah. Um, and, but, I, you know, I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, I'd like to thank my mother for that, by the way, because right. I'm half Norwegian. Okay. And my mother is Norwegian and in Norway, they say what they think. Right. And if you don't like it, that's fine. Okay. And they really, so they, live really with do, years do. Of they really do. If you go there, you know, y- y- you'll find out the truth. If you smell or if you um, are wearing something that doesn't suit you or anything, they'll just go, I wouldn't wear that. Yeah. Oh, that's a terrible haircut or whatever it is. Right. You know, you- you'll find out. Okay. Nothing- and you'll, you'll know the truth. <laughs> so, no, so I think that has really helped. You- um, but what I just wanted to say really was that, those were if you're made redundant, it's not you. I mean, no. it, it could be, but it probably isn't, yeah. Because once you're self employed, there's justice. If you're self employed, you will either prosper or starve, depending yeah. on whether you're any good and whether you work hard and whether you do a good job. Yeah, when you put the graft, in, yeah. And, and I've been happily self employed for 20 years, yeah. So I can do it, and I, I feel good that I've sort of proved to myself I can survive. So, therefore, those three managers who made me redundant must have been wrong or maybe I just didn't fit yeah you know fits everything isn't it? and you so do you think you started your self-employed coaching business
0: with an air of self-doubt in mind or do you think that inner confidence
1: was there I I, in the in the middle I think I I knew I could do it because I'd been running days while I was at the university some on the side and some for the university and they'd always gone fine so I knew I could do it you could deliver um But having said that, I nearly always have doubt before every day I do, even now after 20 years, actually. I always think, yeah. And something I have noticed, if I don't, if I have to say two weeks off, or in the case of COVID, we've had about six months off, haven't we? (laughs) We But if if I have two weeks off on holiday, I start thinking, oh, I've got a time management course next week. What if I can't remember it? You know, I do start, it's amazing how, if you're doing it every day, you don't have time to even think. You just turn up and do it. But- After even a couple of weeks, you start to get nervous again. And that's what I tell people on my presentations course I run, which is that you will always be a bit nervous. you always have that little bit of... Yeah, but in a way, that's that's respect for the audience, isn't it? Absolutely. Because if you care about it, you want it to be great. And I know I can do it seven out of 10 and get away with it. But that's not good enough. I I want it to be nine and a half or ten. And and sometimes I do a day and it's only nine, and I kick myself and I think I should have spent longer on that and not so long on that. And I should have. And so I do. I am quite. I'm hard on myself. Right. And but the weird thing is the audience don't know. So sometimes they think a course was great, and I think I don't know. And other times they they say well it was all right, and I think no, it was brilliant. (laughs) This is (laughs) it. I delivered it. I nailed it. I did it. I nailed it. And you didn't like it. But I think sometimes maybe you have to give them a hard time to really get them to question themselves and they yeah. don't like that, no. you know? And so, you know, they, they don't always know what's good for them or what I think is good for them might not be the same as what they want. Yeah. Um, and, and also sometimes you have a very diverse audience. So you might have some with a really crazy sense of humor and a couple of very serious people. So you have a complete laugh and then a couple of serious people don't like it. Or, but that could be the same in managing a team, can't it? Yeah, exactly. It's and the same how do you problem. get that engagement? How do you please all the people? And with training, you go into a room of 20 people and you don't know them at all. Um, weirdly, I feel I do know them because I do it every day. I, people somewhere deep down, trades. well, well is partly that, but partly just because I do it every day, something deep down makes me feel I already know them because I think they're the same people as yesterday right. in, in a weird way, yeah. even though I know they're not. So I go and go, hi, guys, project management. We love Gantt charts, don't we? And they look at me like I'm some weirdo of what? We we don't know you. But I feel I know them
0: because
1: it's my world that I live in all the time. But to them, it's just a one-off. They've perhaps never been on a course before. And they don't even know, are they allowed to answer back? They don't know the rules. And I'm like, it's yet another course. Here we go. And so it is weird because I don't know them, but I feel I do. And they could have all sorts of issues going on. I mean once i I was talking about push and pull influencing, yeah, and I was saying an example I quite like to use is speeding, right? okay because push influencing is where you force people to do something or, or not do something yeah so that 's where you have speed cameras and and um, you know police hiding around the corner and stuff, yeah. and then there's pull influencing where you actually change how people feel about something. So that would be things like advertising where you show what happens if you hit somebody at 40 rather than 30. Yeah. And you do remember that hammer that used to go into the peach. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah. Um, and that's pull because once you've seen that, it changes you forever. Yeah. Whereas push, there's the police going past the you just yeah, see window. Guilty conscience. <laughs> but so those two methods. And the problem with, with push is that if you know the camera's switched off, you'll go past there at 90 again because they haven't changed how you feel. The psyche hasn't changed. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to do it forever. And it's the same with management. You know, if you force people to work when you're not there, they'll stop working. Whereas if you can get them to care, then they'll do it even when you're not there. Yeah. So pull influencing is better, but more difficult because you have to get into the the head of the person. How do you get someone to care? And that's quite difficult. Whereas to force them is easy. So um, I was talking about that and this, lady suddenly burst into tears and jumped up out of her seat and ran out of the room and it turned out that her brother had been killed by a speeding driver the week before but i didn't know that you know and it was just an example i was using and i wasn't condoning speeding but even just mentioning that subject was enough to upset her and she ran out of the room and so even before you start joking about stuff you know, you just don't know. I could joke about, you know, a donkey or something, but maybe somebody got trampled to death by a donkey last week. You know, you just don't know. Yeah. You don't know your audience as you turn up no, you and don't what's know. going on and, in their lives. And you so. can't start off by saying, oh, what are the things I can't talk about today? Does anybody have any issues? You just, you can't. You Make just, it a very dull course. <laughs> <sort> of, <laughs> yes. And so one of my eternal dilemmas is whether to be quite beige and do courses that are like seven out of yeah. ten on the fun um, or whether to sort of go for it and be at nine out of ten on the fun yeah. and take a few risks and be a bit naughty, but keep people engaged yeah. and, and inspire them, really. Um, but if you do that, there'll be one or two occasionally who don't like it. Yeah. And I still remember, because you do make it fun. I still remember
0: <laughs> from that Grant Thornton course and the sales training,
1: peeling the onion. Yes. Oh, and did <laughs> I do my dodgy demo? I asked one of the women out. Because <laughs> no. oh, I sometimes no, do that. <laughs> oh, okay. And they say, well, you're not tall enough. And I go... Well, um, you know, how about if I stood on a chair? Yeah. And they go, no, you're too old. And I go, well, how about if I was younger? And and you just handle every objection. And I occasionally do a really a, a dodgy demo. But, yeah. but the thing is, it's hilarious and everybody remembers it. Yeah. And I do say, look, you know, don't chat somebody up in a nightclub like this. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the demo. But it's a, but it's a really but, great
0: concept, isn't it? It because is a great. On, you know, yeah. how do you get to the nub of the issue? Yes. Yeah.
1: And if they say it's too expensive, never say, well, I could do it cheaper. Just say, apart from that, what do you think? Yeah. So, you're, you know, you're not very tall. Apart from that, you like me, yeah. you know, because then if they say, well, yeah, if yeah. that's the only problem, then you can say, well, I could stand on a box. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but the examples that you pick to illustrate a point, yeah. the more hilarious they are, the more risk is that somebody will be offended mm-hmm. and say, are you, you know, are you, are you being heightist or, or whatever? And so, uh, and of course, things have got more and more difficult in the last few years about what you can joke about. There's almost nothing yeah. I think you can joke about people being northern still.
0: Okay. Or, or, or if you're you? down
1: in the south. Yeah, I mean, south. I don't know. I secretly wish I was a northerner, actually. I sort of admire their toughness, yeah. but I don't know. Sort of slight so, Norwegian in there. Yeah, so. exactly, yeah. So I do think, and the problem is, if you, if you train 3,000 people a year, the weirdest 1% are going to be quite weird, and there's 30 of them. In fact, the weirdest one in a 1,000 yeah. tenth of a percent there's going to be three of them a year that you're going to get
0: yeah
1: and you don't know who they are is there one in the room today yeah. you don't know and that person is going to take offense at something you say i'll give you one example actually that because i'm still thinking about this i think it's interesting was i did a, i do a sales training course and I, i've never actually done a sales job but i have to sell A day of training every day as well as deliver a day of say of training every day so so i do know about selling and i have to do it and and during my course it all went really well and at the end there was one lady it was a load of engineers there was one woman and she came up at the end and she said i think your course was fascinating i learned a lot but i think it was a bit sexist and i said what do you mean because i was quite i was quite hurt by that because i really don't think i'm sexist at all i hope i'm not and She said, well, you told three stories and they were all about male salespeople. So there's one about a BMW salesman who was totally useless, for example. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking that just all three of those happened to be men. And they were all, by the way, about bad salespeople. And I was thinking, if I told a story about a woman who is a useless salesperson, you know, would I have been accused of criticizing (laughs) women? So what do you do? So I need a story about a good Female salesperson. Now, I could, I could tell a story that happened to be a man and change it. So it's a woman, but I'd find that really hard to do because all of my stories are real Hmm. and I'm living the story. I'm remembering.
0: Yeah. They're part of your history or your experience. And to
1: change it and keep saying she instead of he would really mess with my head. It wouldn't be true, you know. So I just thought, does it matter? If all, my, if, all, if all three of my stories are about men, and am I allowed to tell a story about a woman who performs badly? And, you know, it's basically, it's such a minefield. Yeah. And you'll never please all the people all the time. And even as I say this, half of your listeners are going, no, he should just say, if it's men, he should say men. And the other half will be going, no, he should have a story about a woman. And you, you can't please everybody. All It's no. so difficult when you've got, when you get through a lot of people. Yeah. And in the end, I think the answer is probably to ignore the occasional person who's not happy. But I do find that hard because I care. Yeah. And I, w- I would love to say, I just think statistics, I, you know, you're going to get that. But actually, it really bugs me if somebody complains about a that's day. It's because you're passionate about what you do, though, Chris. And that's a good trait, isn't it? Yes. And I've. And you care. And, you and I've it. never got bored. Yeah. Like all my other jobs, within a few years, I thought, I hate turning up to this same office and these same people and these same problems. And. Every other job I've got bored with. But this, I've not got bored in 20 years. Wow. Which is amazing, really. And then I think it's because you have a different audience every day. Yeah. And it gives you a bit of a buzz. But also, you are making a difference to people's lives. Like, every now and then I meet somebody and they say, they say, you did a course for me 10 years ago. Yeah. Sometimes, actually, we're out and about. And somebody goes, hi, Chris. (laughs) Sometimes it's an attractive lady. And she comes and goes, hi, Chris. (laughs) And my wife's going, who's this? And I'm going, I've no idea.
0: (laughs) Really? (laughs) I've no idea
1: because they're looking at me for a whole day and i'm looking at a sea of faces um and then i do it again the next day and again the next day so So it you know it's thousands of people a year um but they often say i remember one thing you said on your training day
0: so i remember peeling the onion yes and it
1: stuck with me all these years and maybe you've used that technique and it's and it's probably made you thousands over the years you know whatever um, and, and just some little time management technique. If it just saves you a few minutes a day, you know, it all adds up. Um, and that's what – that makes it all worthwhile, cool. I think, because it is – I I think training is the best job in the world. I think really? it's fun. It's satisfying. It's easy, really, because once you know your material, once you've done your course ten times, yeah, you know it. And then you can focus on adapting to the audience and trying to understand them, and it just becomes – Easy and There's fun. There's an art in it. Yeah, I it's also really well paid, yeah. which is I don't know why. Well, I do know why actually. It's because people only get one day with consultancy. You've got somebody in for a few months, and you want to watch the price carefully. But training mm. does a few hundred quid either way doesn't matter because they're only. Yeah. Coming for $1 and if you got
0: testimonials and
1: you can deliver value and you've proven yeah. that you can
0: deliver value. And the,
1: the cost like. is spread over 20 people. Yeah. Why would you not spend 50 quid training a person? If you're spending, you know, 30 grand a year employing, it probably costs you 60 grand a year to employ that person yeah. uh, with all the on cost. Why would you not spend 50 quid? <laughs> it's like um, not putting oil in your Ferrari.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm
1: not going to spend five quid on oil. And that would be mad. Yeah. And And yet most companies, I read somewhere that the average company only... The average manager gets half a day of training a year on average. And, and that's probably about right. You know, they go on a training course every couple of years, yeah. which You've got to is... to develop your people. You've got to believe in your people. You've got to develop them. You've got to make them better people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so training is regarded as a sort of optional extra, just a little corner yeah. of life. And, and I sort of joke that I just live off the crumbs from the big table, really, because training budgets are just tiny. Yeah. And yet it is incredibly important. And and most people don't even really think about it. They, they just think, oh, I probably should do some training. I'll get a guy in. And and they don't really focus on it when really they should. Yeah. So what we mean, have, you, you know, my,
0: one of my philosophies that we run through any business that I'm involved in is this kind of principle of a growth mindset. Because yes. I've you know, I've I've had that mindset that's driven me to be who I am. You and stand all on the shoulders improve. of giants and yeah. all, don't you? Yeah. But I want the whole team to have that mindset and just be that little bit better. Yeah every single day, every single month, every single year than they were before. Yes. Oh, totally. And have that kind of open-mindedness and so we'll invest in training because actually it makes them better at what they do and makes them better individuals and makes them enjoy what they're doing. And
1: it's better for their motivation and it's better for their loyalty to the company and yeah. there are so many benefits that you get from training people and, you know, the, how do you measure the cost of the benefits but, you know, what's the cost if you don't train people yeah. and and the turnover of, of people increases if you don't train them and, yeah. and turnover is really expensive like 10 grand to yeah. replace a person so why would you not spend 50 quid <laughs> <on> tra- <laughs> so yeah so i think um it training such a misunderstood area and i do think there are quite a lot of trainers who are not very good who get away with it lots of good trainers as well of course but the thing is there's no quality control there's no exam you ha- have to pass or anything no. to be a trainer there's not much barrier to entry so anybody can just turn up and do it badly. Yeah. And so it's quite an uncontrolled. I mean you can do accredited training courses but um, but that's a whole different thing. Yeah. So normal training is but then you see managers they they don't have to pass a test. I mean there are some management qualifications out there but most managers are not qualified no. and then most management trainers are not qualified. It's it's bizarre. You know to be a fireman quite rightly you have to be trained for probably 6 yeah. months. But to run a company of thousands of people, no, no training no. required whatsoever.
0: There we are. <laughs> Shall we delve into a couple of subjects, Chris? That's a brilliant background on your world and the you, training world, and you got a
1: longer right? answer than you expected, didn't you? Uh, yeah. oh, we we've got we
0: we've got some really insightful you know, insights there as well. So that's great. But should we have a little chat around time management, which I know is yeah. one of your pet subjects, or and and I suppose I'd kick off that with. Yeah. When you're called in to speak to somebody, an individual or an organisation about improving time management, what are the key mistakes that are being
1: made, in your opinion, and what can be done well, to overcome them? If a manager is too busy, if if it's a manager that's the problem, or a yeah. group of managers, I would always look at delegation first,
0: right?
1: Because my customers really do, do divide into people who can delegate and people who can't. Okay. And you can immediately tell on the phone in, in 30 seconds, by the way, because the, the delegator will have plenty of time and they'll just, you know, when you ring them up, they'll be there and they'll just say, brilliant, let's do it, come in and do it. And they'll leave it to me. Yeah, And then the non-delegator, the control freak, um, will say, I want to know everything that you're going to cover. And why are you doing that? And are you sure you should be doing that? And in fact, they won't even do that. You won't be able to get hold of them because they'll be busy. Are we still in another meeting? He's busy interfering with somebody else before he can (laughs) come around and interfere with you. And so and, you know, it's like um, somebody comes around to service your boiler. Do you stand over them going, why are you using those? pliers why don't you use a green wire instead of a red wire you wouldn't do that would you, no. you know, you're you paying him or her to do that job and you would let them do it but when i come in to do a training course why do about 25 percent of my customers go why are you doing this you know let me do my job it's what i do you know so that's bizarre isn't yeah, it it is Yeah, so um, delegation is a key delegation thing is huge so and how do you get somebody that
0: doesn't or can't or doesn't delegate to delegate
1: well <laughs> i suppose it I'll answer the rest of time management in a minute, but just while we're on delegating, yeah. I think the first thing is to work out why they don't do it. Because there are lots of reasons why people don't delegate. Yeah. Like fear it will go wrong, for yeah. example, uh, or I can do it better than them. And every reason to not delegate is false. Yeah. So fear of it going wrong, if you monitor, it can't go wrong. You know, if you check on them every day or if you check it before yeah. it gets sent out or whatever, it can't go wrong. But people have this fear, what if it goes wrong? Um, And you can, it, it's not a question of either you monitor or you don't. There's a sliding scale. So you can monitor less often. Yeah. And you can get to the point where you check once a week, once a month or whatever. And eventually you can decide you trust them and then you can yeah. just let them do it. So, the fear of it going wrong is a completely misguided fear, and then this argument that they'll not do it as well as you—that is probably true. Mm. But if they do it eighty or ninety percent as well as you, then that's going to be absolutely fine. Especially as that last ten percent is probably in your mind anyway, and you're thinking, "Well, I wouldn't have done it like that," and it's yeah. slightly different, but it's still but the fine. result is the same. Yes, yeah. and so and the point is, even if it is ten percent less, great. You've freed up 100% of your time. Yeah. you know, So you've saved all that time to do something more important more because there's the opportunity cost of what you could have done with your time when you were doing a job that you should have delegated. Yeah. So if you start to really drill into it, um, you can show people that the benefits are huge. And one of my favorite statistics, I don't know if I stole it or made it up, but if you can save one hour a week, by delegating a bit more yeah. then, or, or doing anything, actually saying no or whatever. If you can save an hour a week, that saves you, let's say 50 hours a year. So let's call that a whole working week, yeah. a bit more than a working week, probably, I hope. Yeah. So <laughs> so that's, you could save a week. And, and if you've got, let's say you've got 10 people who work for you and you give them each one more hour a week, which they won't even notice. Yeah. And they'll probably be pleased to be given. Yeah. Oh, at last, he's letting me it's do empowerment, It's empowerment. Yeah, it? yeah. You know, then, um, you can save 10 hours a week. You could save 10 weeks a year. So, and this is not 10 crap weeks that are full of meetings and interruptions and no. emails. This is 10 weeks of pure empty time. Yeah. You know, imagine if you could have the whole of January, the whole of February and half of March just off. Free. Productive. I mean, I'd go on holiday for January, just take a month <laughs> skiing or something, but you could still have all of February and all of March, half of March just to think. Yeah, and come up with ideas and improve things and motivate your workforce and, you know, just so many things you could do. Yeah, and that's simply an hour a week. And, and that's a, yeah, it's huge. And, and, and so delegating is such an easy win, and a lot of managers are bad about it because they care. Yeah. It's not because they're bad. I mean, if you're a control freak, for example, I've delegated the garden to my wife, right? She can do what she likes in there. Plant what you like. Dig it all up. I don't care. But that's because I don't care about the garden. Yeah. So that's not very big of me, is it? Yeah, that's not. But, you know, delegating the organising of my CD collection, oh, no.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: they have to be alphabetical and within artists, they have to be chronological and no one's allowed to touch them. So something that you care about, to delegate yeah. that is much more difficult. Yeah. So if you care, it is difficult. I think it's probably the most important management skill, actually, delegating. Yeah. And I think it's really hard to do. It, is. it takes a long time and you naturally can do it. Yeah. Right? It takes a long and time to learn. Especially it. if you're an entrepreneur and you've set your company yeah. up because you're the best person at doing it. And then you've got to delegate to people who are slightly less good as you are. But how will they ever be better than you? You know, you have to start. So if they can do it 80% as well as you, you should give it to them. Yeah. And just, just don't look at that last 20%. Just think it's good enough. Yeah. And then they'll get to 90, 100. They'll probably get to 120, yeah. which will feel great. I love it when somebody's better than I am and I can just give it to them and do it. Yeah, don't we? You know, never happens, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But no, no, but just occasionally you find somebody really good and it is such a pleasure to give it to them and they just run with it. Yeah. So delegating can be really enjoyable when it works well. So it
0: takes some perseverance because it doesn't always go well. Yeah.
1: So delegating, it doesn't always go well and it's tempting to take the whole thing back. Yeah. I don't know whether I can talk about Hitler. um, Can I briefly? Cause, yeah, because I've got I've got TiVo and it records programmes it thinks I will like. Okay. Um, based on some algorithm, I don't know. And of course, it looks at what my kids watch and what my wife watches and thinks it's all me. So it mushes it all together <laughs> into some weird algorithm. It thinks, wow, this guy's odd, and it, it keeps recording programmes about Hitler. And I don't, I'm not particularly interested in him. I mean, right. I, there are some interesting. Things yeah. to do with the Second World War, of course, and we can definitely History's, learn lessons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I hope everything. we've learned the lessons from it. But um, but there was one really fascinating programme about Hitler's management style. And apparently at the beginning of the war, he was, of all the things you thought we'd talk about on this yeah, podcast. I didn't think we'd be going <laughs> <air> business, <laughs> but, No, But at the beginning of the war, he was really into empowerment. Okay. And he just said to his tank commanders, um, get me France. Yeah. You, they had to get past the Maginot line. And there was um, there was sort of massive fortifications between France and Germany. Um, but they, they, they'd they missed a bit. And I think it was the Ardennes forest and there were lots of trees and they thought tanks can't go through trees. It'll be all right. But of course, the Panzer tanks could go through the yeah. trees. So anyway, he empowered the tank commanders and just let them do what they liked. Yeah. And they went charging through the forest right across France, got to Paris. France collapsed. Um, and it was really, really successful for the germans um and so hitler was mr empowerment at the beginning of the war and it worked really well but later on during the war things started to go wrong for him i think it was because he'd attacked russia and that was the 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 eastern front was um draining all his energies all his resources and things were going wrong and what he did when things go wrong is what managers do he started to pull everything back and say right because you've made some mistakes I I want to check everything. Don't do anything without checking me with me first. And obviously, he's not a guy you want to argue with. So they used to check everything first with him, and he became a total control freak. And apparently, when the D-Day landings were happening, it it was at dawn, and he was asleep in his castle in Austria, and nobody wanted to wake him up because he was quite grumpy in the mornings, and there's nothing worse (laughs) than a grumpy Hitler.
0: (laughs) the old man. (laughs) Yeah,
1: so so nobody wanted to wake Hitler up and tell him that there was an attack happening. Um, And he might literally shoot the messenger, you know. So for several hours, several vital hours, they couldn't make a decision. Nobody knew what to do. Tanks were not mobilized. The Germans did nothing. And when he finally got word of what to happen, he was like, right, do this, do this, do this. And it was too late. And the Allies had got their foothold in France and everything was different. And, And so... I thought that was fascinating mm. because it is our natural reaction when something goes wrong to just say, to right, you control. burnt those cakes. I'm going to do all the cooking from now on forever. Yeah. But what you should do is say, well, why did you burn the cakes? What have you learnt? Okay, brilliant. We you know, we, we fixed that forever now. Yeah. I trust you. I know you can do it again. Or even have another go while I watch just to check yeah. you, you got it. You know, you can learn from it. But if you pull it back into yourself, then everything gets worse.
0: Yes. We had um, – um, We had a great guest on the podcast a few weeks ago about, you know, how do you run your business like a Formula One team? And one of his key takeaways from that podcast was that Formula One teams constantly make mistakes, but they always have a debrief and they learn from them. And they trust in their people again. Yes.
1: And they evolve and they develop. And And if you punish mistakes, people just hide them and then they just keep happening. And it's just stupid, isn't it? So we've gone off track a little bit. Shall we come back to time management? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if it's not delegating, um, then there are all sorts of things it could be. I mean, so we haven't got time to do a whole time management course, but a couple of things of interest. One is people confuse importance and urgency. Yeah, And a lot of people's strategy of dealing with life is just to do the most urgent thing first. Yeah, And that's what they do. But, of course, if you do that there are some things you never get around to. You never get around to things that are important, but not urgent, like long-term planning. It yeah. just never gets on the radar. And a lot of managers just run around on fire every day and they love firefighting. Yeah. It's macho. They feel good, but, but actually that's not what they're for. No. and, and and really if there's a, if there's a crisis, you you should sort the crisis, but then you should think, why has that happened? You should kick yourself for it happening. Yeah. And you should think never again, I'm going to get to the underlying cause and fix it. And so, But often they don't want to talk about the underlying cause because the underlying cause is them
0: (laughs) because they haven't (laughs) haven't
1: set a system up or trained people or whatever. So so just focusing on urgent stuff all the time is a really bad idea. And ideally, you'd you'd spend half your day on important things. And every day you do something that's important, but not urgent. Yeah. And often people have never really made that distinction. They just assume because it's urgent, it must be important. Yeah. And because it's not urgent, it can't be important. And actually, there's a huge difference.
0: Yes, yeah, huge, isn't it?
1: Um, so that's one thing that is yeah. worth understanding. Another obsession of mine is goals. And I know you're into goals yeah. as well. And. One of the things that changed my life more than anything else probably was writing down my goals years and years ago. I actually did it when I was working at the the shock absorber factory in South Wales, where the guy used to phone me up and shout at me. (laughs) And it was just pure chance really that this friend of mine had got this book. I can't even remember the name of the title, but it was something like how to make millions of pounds without doing any work or something like that. And, um, one of those mythical books. How to be exist. successful. It had a, a bloke in a suit and, yeah. and a rainbow on the cover, I think. Okay. And uh anyway, it said successful people have goals, you've got to write your goals down. Yeah. And I, I could see the point of that. You know, you set a goal on with your sat nav, don't you? You don't just drive at random and hope you end up somewhere good. And life's like that as well. So um so I wrote a list of goals and a few years later I realized they'd all happened. Yeah. Which is quite a weird feeling. I, I'd forgotten all about the piece of paper. I found the piece of paper. And so I wrote a second list. And my second list actually was quite a weird, it only had two things on it. Okay. And I just wrote, to find a job I really enjoy. By this time I was working at Dolphin Packaging. Yeah. Uh, and to, I put, to find a job I really enjoy and to only work two or three days a week. Because right. I was working six days a week and I missed yeah. it. And the university came along. Because of that, And that was a job I loved. And we did 100 days a year of teaching, which yeah. is two or three days a week. And I just thought, oh, my God, it's happened again. So I've carried on writing down goals. You should see my list now. It's huge. Hey, good. Um, and, you know, for example, about five years ago, I wrote down to record some of my training courses and get them on the Internet. Yeah. Because I thought if I could get somebody to pay, say, one pound for a whole day of time management training, let's say, why would you not? Maybe a million people might yeah. pay a pound you know, you never know. And I wrote that down as a goal to record um, and get them. And and, sh- and that happened through a series of weird coincidences. I ended up on LinkedIn learning. I've yeah. got a load of courses on there now and they do send me money every month. And and that's it's turned passive, out to yeah. be. And, and so, yeah, it has been massive. So I, I, I keep writing down goals and I think part of time management is to think what's important to me and, and that is the same question as what are my goals? Mm. Because your goals tell you what's important. So, you know, if you've got a goal to sell more to Scotland, let's say, then that means that Scottish customers are important. And if somebody phones up and says, hello, I'm from Inverness, they're important
0: because yeah. they contribute Gives you your focus, goal. doesn't
1: it? Yeah. And even deciding whether you want to go for turnover or profit or, or interesting work yeah. or growth. I mean, a lot of companies haven't even thought their way through that. No. So... You've got to have really clear goals for the company and yourself. And that is a difficult question. It's, it's the one thing I can't tell you the answer to. What are your goals? No. The answer is, I don't know. You've got to decide. Individual to every yeah.
0: individual and every business is different
1: I as mean, well. I can tell I? you what some of mine are, but mine will be totally different to yours. Yeah. Um, so, Because um, I like eating curry and playing the saxophone and running my fingers through the luxuriant fur of my dog. Right. But that's not everybody's idea of fun. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I do love dogs. I don't know something about them. Don't know okay. why. Yeah. Dogs, not cats. Then, no, they you? don't like cats. No, they're, right. they're fickle and, and, um, and mean, whereas dogs, they put up with anything. Right. And they're just loyal. And uh, so I don't know, but, but yeah, so everyone's different, aren't they? And yes. so, um, if you've got a goal to have 10 cats, that's absolutely fine. And, I think a lot of problems happen in the world because we've got different goals and people try to make you have their goals. You should be yeah. doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. And why can't we all have our own things that we want to do? But unless you've got clarity yeah. of what
0: is important to you and what your own goals are, yeah. then you do become subservient to others, don't you? Yes. That's human nature. And therefore, you yeah. become subservient and you become unhappy as a result. And, and some people
1: just turn up to work and go, okay, what shall I do today, boss? Yeah. Or or what are the problems that need solving today? Yeah, And really... That's just reacting. Yeah. But once you know what your goals are, you can think, well, this is what's important to me. You yeah. know, I'm going to try and find five more customers in Scotland or whatever it might be. Or yeah. I'm going to design a new product that will sell really well yeah. in America or whatever. And then you've got that goal and you can work on it. And it feels good. It, it makes you happier to be mo- moving towards an objective. Yeah. And, it, and bliss is
0: when yeah, an individual's goals are coherent or aligned to those goals
1: of the organization in which they operate and work. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I would say to people, you might find your goals are only ninety percent aligned. Because you might might get complete some bits of your job that you don't enjoy as much as others. Um but even then you can say to your boss, can I do more of this and less of this? Because this is the bit I really like. And your boss will probably be delighted. And they're probably thinking, who can I give this to? You know, (laughs) so you that's why appraisals are so vital yeah because then you can make sure your goals are as aligned as possible, and there might be a bit of compromise, but that 's what you've got to aim for and if somebody 's goals just really don't align with the company, then they should look for another job yeah. and and there's nothing wrong with saying that no you know and and i I do say that on my time management day actually I say that if you don 't enjoy your job or you can 't see where it 's going, if it 's not moving towards something that excites you, you should look for another job, you know possibly within the company, yeah but probably. Somewhere else. And and what I like to ask people is, if one of you thought, oh my God, he's right, and left the company because of what I've said, would I have done them a favor? And the answer is yes, definitely.
0: Yeah.
1: Would I have done the company a favor? And the answer is yes, definitely. Because that person will be replaced by somebody who loves that job. Someone who at the moment is desperate to do that job and would yeah. love to do it, and you're sitting in that chair instead of them. And the great thing about people is that they're so weird so there is somebody who loves filing and there is somebody else who loves ha- handling complaints and you know and there's somebody else who loves cold calling yeah. and all these jobs that other people don't We're like. all definitely humans yeah. aren't we and so there is somebody out there who will love that job if you can find them yeah so that's another big part of time management i think of working out what you want to spend your time on yeah and if i can squeeze in one more thing about time one management. more Go yeah on. which is just i think the objective of time management is to maximize the time you spend on important things right but how do you do that and it's partly working out what's important which we've talked about but how do you how do you maximize your time on anything because it's fixed and the answer is you have to minimize the time you spend on unimportant things okay yeah um And you can do that by saying no or negotiating or delegating or having efficient systems or not being so fussy or whatever. There's lots of things you can do to minimize the time you spend on unimportant things. And I used to worry that time management was a bit negative because it's all about saying no and, you know, minimizing. And so the how of time management is a bit negative. But the why of time management is very positive. Absolutely. So you have to somehow minimize that so that you can then have more time for the things that really matter. And that's the positive part of getting yeah. achieving your goals. So it's the difference between the why and the how. Okay. And I worked that out. Thank you very much. Uh, but it's taken me years. <laughs> it's, it's taken, taken years. me years to understand Since that. Six really, years of really, life. <laughs> really. And in fact, I probably read it somewhere and internalized yeah. it and then thought I'd thought of it. <laughs> that's what you <we> all do. <laughs> yeah. You often talk about, I suppose it it follows on from
0: that, about that conversation we're just having, really. You often talk about that value of doing the things that scare you. Yeah. Um, Uh. And and therefore, I, I wonder whether we could just touch on that element of, you know, something that you're very passionate about. But how can somebody learn or condition themselves to be braver To do the things that scare
1: them. Yeah. By the way, I'm really bad at at doing the things that scare me. Yeah. Uh, I've got to admit, and, um, you know, some of the people you've interviewed on this podcast have been amazingly fearless. And But I'm a coward, really. And I I think when I've spoken up against bosses, it's been stupidity on my part. I I really (laughs) do think. and, And when I've done jobs which were on the edge of my comfort zone, like, for example... I was asked, would you, I was. it was a website called lynda.com years ago, and it's become LinkedIn Learning now. Okay. And they said, would you like to contribute um, a project management course to our website? And I said, can I send you one I've already made? And they said, no, no, you've got to come here and be filmed. And I said, where, where are you? And they said, Los Angeles. And I actually said, no, like an idiot. <laughs> I just said, oh, no, I don't fancy that. And they said, are you sure? You do realise who we are? <clears throat> and I didn't really, you know, I didn't know how big they were. And I said, well, would I get paid? And they said, oh, yeah. You know, they told me how much they're going to pay me. And, and when I heard how much it was, I I, I said, right, when can <laughs> I start? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was on a plane, within a few weeks, I was on a plane to Los Angeles. Yeah. And when I got there, I thought, I thought I can talk all day about project management. You know, this is easy. Yeah. But when I got there, there was this whole studio with um, a director, a producer, a lighting person, a sound person, someone doing the auto cue, you know, someone doing makeup, um, two cameras, you know, 4K, massive great lenses, and and I had to stand on this X with all these lights pointing at me, and they went, "Okay, roll," and I was just terrified. And, you know, my hands were sweating and I'd I'd never even talked to a camera before. I'm used to talking to an audience, getting some feedback and things. And and it was so difficult. And they kept going, okay, can we do one more? They said, Chris, that was good. But, you know, and I thought, oh, it obviously wasn't. Can we do one more take? And can you shorten that story? And I was going, oh god! I can't remember what I've said now. Can <laughs> yeah. you do it again? I'm doing but, this off you know, cuff. Yeah. Yes, but you know, can you not not use that expletive word? Or can you do it again? But do that? and I was and I was so frazzled. I was jet lagged as well. Yeah. And it was utter stupidity of mine to have just thought I can just go and do this. <laughs> and in the end, we did it, and it took a whole week. And we got a really good course. And they asked me back to do more. And now, when I go back to do filming, I prepare it really carefully, and I I spend months writing it and honing it and making sure it's perfect before I go. Yeah. But that first time, if I'd known what it was going to be like, I think I would have chickened out of doing it. Yeah. But it was just stupidity, really. But I'm so glad I did it Yeah. because it's been brilliant. It's transformed your business. Yes, and, and it's led to work and it's been interesting and fun. And it's felt really satisfying to record my stuff yeah. in really good quality video. You know, it's like you've been doing live gigs in a band your whole life and you go into a studio <laughs> and record it all with yeah. great session musicians. You know, it feels... Great, and it's been financially good, but but so I'm really not claiming to be brave. Um, most of the things I've done, I've just said yes because a customer has asked me, yeah. and I thought I think I can do that, and then I've discovered it was harder than I thought, and I've had to work really hard to do it. So I do think there's an element of just taking the plunge, just maybe. taking that first step. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, at the moment, I've got a coach,
0: okay. and I haven't had a
1: coach for years um because i don't want them to push me out of my comfort zone because i'm basically lazy and you know i earn a reasonable living why should i come out of my comfort zone but i sort of stupidly hired this coach and he's been pushing me out of my comfort zone and i'd really recommend having a coach because they will push you out of your comfort zone and once you've taken the plunge and signed up you've then kind of got to you're do it especially yeah. if it's quite an expensive coach which mine is I have to do what he tells me because I'm thinking well I'm paying him I've you know got to do it so does your argumentative yeah.
0: nature not come out you talked about that earlier you know when, when you're and you've yeah. been very independently minded for 20 years then to have yeah. somebody coaching you Once you're self-employed
1: you can't have a boss can you I no. can never go back to that and um and also if you do training courses you're used to being right because you turn up you're the expert yeah and i am the expert on a small number of things and there's the rest of the world i know nothing about i admit that but there's a few things i know about so um i think having coaches are vitally important now i would say that with an evolve hat on but it's changed
0: my life you know coaches that I've had that have helped Absolutely. And make me just think differently or I'm kicking myself my for
1: not having a coach before but even yeah. when I go skiing I think I don't want lessons because he's only going to criticise me <laughs> uh, and actually you know of course it's brilliant to have lessons because yeah. you get better and you enjoy it more um, and you've got to have a coach and I've found someone who I a guy who I do respect you don't know him I mean no. I've, I've never met him I just, we just do it all over the internet over Zoom Okay, he, he's actually in Portugal but he's Swiss I mean it's bizarre but he's an expert on helping people um market training courses online, okay, um so, so he's got a very specific niche, yeah, yeah. and that's why I liked him because he's he's done it for lots of people a bit like me, and I yeah. looked at what he does and he's also very systematic and kind of engineering he's not a gung ho inspirational person. he is like, "I have a system, you follow my system, it will work and yeah. i and I just do what he tells me, and it works yeah um and no point in lots of detail, but just I know you want to know what I've been doing with him. Probably. Yes. So very briefly, um, two things. Firstly, when I sell a training course on Udemy, it, they price it at sort of 80 quid, but it's always reduced to 10 pounds. That's their model. Everybody buys everything for 10 quid. Right. On Udemy. Whatever it's priced dot Udemy.com. Yeah. And I only get three quid out of the 10. So I'm selling my courses for three quid. Now, I don't really mind because we I sell thousands. It's passive, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, and it's, and it's know, passive. Yeah. So it does work out well, but it's only three quid a course. And this coach of mine, who's actually called Till Boadella, it's a great name, yeah, great isn't name, Till Boadella. Yeah. But he said to me, um, why don't you sell your courses on your own website for a decent price? And I said, because they're on Udemy for 10 quid. So if I sell them for 100, who's going to buy them? How do I get around that problem? And he said, well, make a bundle. So put a whole load of courses in there for, say, 200 quid and bundle it with um, some audio and a bit of coaching and some support um, and some quizzes and, and just make a whole package and sell it for 200 quid. And I thought, that's an interesting idea. I've never thought about that. So with his help, I did that called it the life skills collection and okay and and did that and we sold 200 for 200 quid which is 40 grand just like that um and that more than paid for a year of him yeah um already so that was really interesting and that is now on there and later we're going to get to what he calls making it evergreen because you can have an automated sales funnel process where there are YouTube videos that advertise it and people look at the video, they like it, they click, they go through, they buy the life skills yeah. collection for 200 quid. So you can have this passive thing. And he knows all about setting up automatic funnels that do okay. that kind of thing. Um, but then the second part, he said to me, right, now you need a high ticket offer. And I'm, I just don't know anything about any of this. You know, I've spent years creating stuff that I'm interested in. And you in. deliver it physically. Yeah, but never passive income stuff, and never the marketing side. So I have all these ideas, like you know, which of the six animals are you, and all these things. But I've never marketed any of that really. No. I just stick it on my website, and no one looks at it. You know, that's <laughs> and, and we, we probably all do that kind yes, of thing. Definitely. But this guy's a marketing expert, and he's but he's taking me so out of my comfort zone. So I thought the high ticket offer is something that people will pay one or two thousand pounds a month for, yeah. for maybe six months, you know, what would somebody pay me six grand for? And I was thinking, you know, a, a weekend of personal teaching with Chris <laughs> in, in, in a spa or something like that, you know, or, you know, we'll go to Barbados as a select group of five yeah. people. You know, Retreat. Tony thing. Robbins yeah. does that kind of yeah. thing. But I just thought, I, I don't know. That's not really me to do. I don't know. Um, but, Anyway, he said to me, we'll keep thinking about it because there will be an answer. You've just got to find it. Uh, and I suddenly realized that there is demand for other people to learn how to get into training. Yeah. And for years, people have said to me, I'd like to do what you do. And I've said to them, it's harder than you realize because it is hard work. Yeah. And, you know, um, and I've, all, I've never got into the idea of teaching them how to do it. I, I always thought, why would I teach a competitor? But, you know, I'm at the point now where I'm reducing the amount of day-to-day. I don't want to drive to Manchester to talk to six people anymore now. But I could teach somebody else how to do that. Yeah. Um, and if I can teach you how to earn a living of between 50 to 100 grand a year, and it's fun, you know, training pays about a thousand pounds a day. So if you just do one day a week, that's yeah. 50 grand a year for a day a week. And, and at the moment, it's all over Zoom. Yeah. But if you do three... Um, one hour zoom you can charge about 300 pounds an hour for a zoom training session because they've got 30 people it's 10 quid ahead so if you do three hours a week of zoom that's about a thousand pounds a week it's about 50 grand for three hours and you can do it in your pants (laughs) so so i know how to sell and deliver training and i can teach other people so so with the help of this coach i've set up this little thing which i've called successful trainers uh, and i can teach you how to be a successful trainer. And I'm working with, I've got 11 people in my little gang and, and it's really great because they all compare notes with each other. Yeah. And I do a group call with them twice a week where they can ask me anything. And each week I give them the next step and I've got this whole series of things, which I'm going to show them. And it starts with, you know, setting up your website and brand and logo and all that sort of thing. And, And then it's like writing the material and then it's selling it and then it's delivering it. And then it's putting it online and getting some passive income. So I've worked out this whole program. It's basically just what's in my head. Written down, but it's not just a training course; it's kind of coaching because they well, ask This you cohort questions. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Then
0: put a cohort together that will support each yeah. other. Yeah, and they're, like they're showing me the
1: website. What do you think? And I'm saying, well, I wouldn't have that. And and they're showing me videos they've made for YouTube, and I'm saying it's a bit long, or we'll do this, do that. Yeah. And and they're asking me questions about you know what sort of microphone to use and all kinds of things. Um. So they've got me available, and we have a Slack group where we just send each other messages the whole time, and um. So. And they all are doing different subjects so they can pass work to each other if they sell it and everything. It's this little network. So that's wow. been fascinating. And, but I've been well out of my comfort zone doing it. And it's all because this coach has pulled me out of my comfort zone and made you do something. Different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I do think one way to get courage is to have a coach. Um, But, of course, your goals also force you to have courage as well. Because if you set a goal that makes you almost anxious, um, you know, if you think, well, I'd like to, um, you know, be on telly or something, then you, you know, I I don't think that's a very good goal, actually. But but then you suddenly think, oh, my God, how am I going to do that? You know, a good goal makes you feel almost or even just. So I've got a goal, for example, uh, Lloyd and I have got this goal to drive across India and we're going to hire a car. Come with us if you want. (laughs) That's (laughs) an invitation and a half. Yeah, and we're going to hire a car, um, some big uh, crash-proof, you know, sort of big thing, uh, and um, drive across India. And we're probably going to take a month and eat fantastic food and meet great people on the way because – Lloyd was born in India. Yes. And I love India. I've been there several times. It's my favourite country. It's just a brilliant place. Driving's pretty hairy there. Mm, I but, can only imagine. You know, but what the hell we can do it and we'll have insurance. And if we dent the car a bit, so what? It's only yeah. So any money. So we're gonna do that. And our, our wives are not very impressed by that. I things. can only imagine. They don't want to come and they also <laughs> don't want us to go. But but you know, if you've got a goal like that, it makes you feel a bit uncomfortable because yeah. you think, how are we gonna do that? What's it gonna be like? What if it goes wrong? Um so I do think goals pull you out of your comfort zone as well. Definitely. But I have noticed that happiness comes from coming out of my comfort zone. And in fact, I've got one more brilliant example I've got to tell you about, because it goes back to me being stupid, really. I, some friends of mine said, would you like to come trekking in the Himalayas? And I just thought, yeah, I quite fancy a nice walk. (laughs) Thinking it's a Brecon Beacon. Yeah, and I (laughs) I thought, we'll, you know, I'll buy some nice walking boots and uh, it'll be fine and we'll look at lovely monasteries and monks chanting and, you know, it'd be really cool, wouldn't it? So I said yes to this. And my friend Steve was organising it and his wife Rita was going. I thought, if Rita can do it, I can do it, you know, I thought to myself. Uh, Because Steve's a bit of a crazy guy, but Rita's very sensible, so I thought it's going to be fine. Yeah um and so and my wife liked the idea of it so we said yes and then they said right there's a briefing um with the travel agent i went do we need a briefing all right then so we went to this briefing and the guy said um here's an equipment list, a kit list. And it had things like a five season sleeping bag. I'm thinking, well, what's that? There's only four seasons, but a five sleep season is a really warm. It takes you down to like minus 50. And I'm thinking, what? And then they kept mentioning, you know, when we get to EBC, you'll need this and that. And I said, excuse me, what's EBC? And they went, well, Everest Base Camp, obviously. And I went, (laughs) hang on a minute. We're not going there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going there. And, And I sort of thought, well, it's only base camp, so maybe that's all right, you know. (laughs) But Everest Base Camp is higher than the top of Kilimanjaro. And – but anyway, I sort of said I'd do it, so I just thought, right. You're committed. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, I'm taken out of my comfort zone by utter stupidity, really. And so we did this trek, and sure enough, it was complete hell. Yeah. You know, so it was – it was so cold at night, you had to sleep with your camera – in your sleeping bag because otherwise the batteries would go flat so you had all this stuff clanking around in your sleeping bag Uh, and in fact you had to you slept with a bottle of wee with you to keep you warm but in the morning when you wake up you've got this cold bottle of wee Mm. I mean it was really crazy stuff um and i twisted my ankle stupidly and so that didn't help so i was like bandaged but i carried on because that's the sort of guy i am and um and we made it we go all the way to our space camp and all the way back and it was an incredible achievement and i was thinking about i mean i was well out of my comfort zone but i was thinking about did it make me happy because every night as we crawled into our tent totally exhausted (laughs) and freezing cold and by the way i went from um blowing my nose to just snorting it out, oh. to just to just letting it run down my face, you know. And I went from getting changed into um, into pajamas um, to um, just sleeping in my underwear to sleeping fully clothed. Yeah. You know, by the end I was so exhausted. By the end I just didn't care. Yeah. And I was just filthy, unshaven, smelly. I just didn't care. You know, it was literally that. I was almost just hardly surviving. You know. And you go off your food at altitude. Food tastes horrible, and you've got the runs. There's no toilets. You have to go behind a boulder. You know, I can't tell you. I but I mean, sort of stuff that Lloyd does every day. But <laughs> but you know, to me, it was just like well, yeah. and and every night I used to think, for the same money, I could be lying on a beach in the Maldives with you know with a, with a, somebody feeding me grapes while I lie there. You know, I, I, what yeah. am I doing? <laughs> and so I would say there was a big downward peak of of you know a peak of unhappiness while i was doing it but you did get an amazing feeling of achievement and it was fantastic to see mount everest and to look up and to think you know there's another two kilometers vertically how can anybody climb that and it was amazing to have and the mountains were spectacularly beautiful in the evening the sun lights them up and they all turn like a golden color and you're down in the valley and it is and there were some amazing things that we saw and did and i'm so glad i did it now yeah so it's like if you can imagine a graph where there's a big downwards peak at the time but then there's residual happiness you get forever afterwards looking back thinking wow what a great trip that was whereas if you never go out of your comfort zone, you don't get that you don't get that residual happiness. And peaks and no yeah, residual. And, and residual and I bet, happiness. I love that. Yeah, and um, I bet everyone can think about. Trips they've been on, yeah. walks, cycle trips, where maybe it tipped down with rain or whatever. And at the time, you were probably a bit cold and unhappy. Yeah. But you look back thinking, God, that was epic. Do you remember? That yeah. was hilarious. Do you remember that time when we fell in the river by mistake or couldn't get the car started and we had to sleep? And, you know, and, and, but you look back and you think, wasn't that great? Yeah. And so it, it I creates do think creates
0: memories as well. And I yeah. as human beings, we need those. Don't we? So
1: you grow as well, of course. Yeah. But the main thing is, you're right. Coming out of your comfort zone creates all those memories, which add to your, you're uh, apparently there's two types of happiness so there's um there's what's called hedonistic happiness which is happiness you just get at the time short term it's eating there, that it's curry. Instant fix. Um, yeah. yeah and so hedonistic happiness was pretty much negative on the everest check <laughs> yeah, um, but then you've got what's called eudaimonic happiness eudaimonia which is greek for happiness apparently and that yeah. your eudaimonic happiness is your sort of life satisfaction of looking back thinking i did that and i'm glad i did that because it was great wow so things like achievement do add to your your residual happiness, your eudaimonic happiness. And the game is to try to do both. But hedonistic happiness often leads to less happiness later. Yeah. Usually uh, has a consequence. Yes, yeah, so a <laughs> consequence of some sort. Yeah. Everything from you know having an affair to just drinking too much or whatever. Yeah. So there's a weird sort of thing where you, you have to suffer to have happiness later. Or if you go for a lot of temporary happiness, it maybe makes you less happy later. Yeah. So, you know, the game is to try to get enough of both. Try to, you know, enjoy your life in balance. Now that's a challenge. It <laughs> is a real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So coming out of your comfort zone is one of the sources of happiness. Brilliant. There are many others, of course. There is. Yeah. I
0: often end with a question around that definition of success, Chris, but... Uh, I did see you wrote a very yeah. interesting blog post on your website about attending your Cambridge University U- reunion. Oh, uh, oh God, uh, and you what are you telling you about yourself and the meaning of success? So is it <laughs> success related? Let's end with that story, shall we?
1: Yeah, I can remember the story, but I can't quite remember the conclusion, really, because yeah, so I went back to my Cambridge reunion. And I was dreading it because I just knew all those Cambridge people would have been really successful. And at the time I had sort of just started out as a freelance trainer. I think I was earning about a hundred grand. So it was good. And I was working pretty hard to do that. Um, Anyway, when I turned up, there was a Ferrari in the car park and I thought, oh, here we go. (laughs) This is just what I thought it would be. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we all met at this sort of posh dinner with bow ties on and stuff and, uh, Everyone looked the same, only grey, really, yeah. you know, pretty much the same faces, but we all looked quite a bit older. I think we were 40 or 45 years okay. old at that time, something like that. Um, and the guy who had the, uh, the Ferrari had set up his own software company and he'd, he'd, he'd made some uh, call centre software and sold it for millions. And he was always the geek. He was yeah. really sort of greasy-haired and anarachy, and and he still was. He still looked awful and was sitting there missing some teeth, you know, or whatever. <laughs> uh, but um, but he'd made a whole load of money, and well done to him. I mean, you yeah. know, with respect. It was great actually to see that he'd done well. And then most of the people I knew were kind of senior managers or partners in law firms, and were sort of. Pretty well paid, but not happy. Yeah. That was what really amazed me. They all said, "Oh God, you know, I work really long hours." And I, you know, is this what life is? And yeah. is this it? And they were the main problem they had was lack of time. It keeps coming back to that. And they were working really long hours and not particularly enjoying their jo- their job. And not they didn't really have much of a sense of achievement even um, because they were just in, on this treadmill of sort of stuff. Yeah, and. You know, some were sort of medical doctors, consultants, and but you know, they were doing sort of six knee replacements a day and they were earning two hundred grand or whatever, but they were just on this sort of butchery just treadmill. This treadmill just, and just, life. Yeah, yeah. And there's no creativity in just doing yet another knee replacement. They were just very skilled people. Don't get me wrong, I'll be eternally grateful when I need a knee replacement. Yeah. But, you know, they they and they are changing people's lives in a way, but they didn't feel they, they were just is that it and I know a lot of doctors who are not happy really um and it was fascinating to see that they weren't happy and they weren't massively rich either no. most there's an inverse correlation between IQ and being a millionaire so most millionaires don't have a university degree yeah. because university degrees get you into a, a well-paid safe profession yeah. like being a lawyer or an accountant or something yeah. like that and and that's great but the people who really make Big money are, you know, they run their own scrapyard or something like yeah. that and they're entrepreneurs. Um, having said that, making big money doesn't make people happy particularly. No. There's, there's, a, there's, there's not a n- direct correlation no, there. There's there. definitely not. And that's a whole other subject we could talk about. Money is not going to be the answer. So I was fascinated to see the, you know, the cream of England's education system coming out the other side. And there they were, um, not particularly successful monetarily and not particularly happy either.
0: No.
1: Um, and I felt reasonably smug actually because I was doing okay financially. I was paid as much as they were, but I didn't have a boss. And I didn't really have a care in the world because I just turn up and talk about a subject. And if I lose a customer, it doesn't matter because I've got about 30 customers and it's fine. And um, and I can pick and choose. And so I I love being self-employed. It's not for everyone, but for me, yeah. it's turned out to be the answer. And so they all thought I was a sort of almost a weird hippie, really. He's just some self-employed guy who does training courses because <laughs> they were very status orientated. Yeah. Oh, I'm a partner in a law firm and you're just a self-employed trainer. And uh, you yeah. know, and but I thought, well, you know, stuff you because <laughs> I fingers know, you yeah. unhappy. <laughs> so, and, but it was really interesting to think about that, and it got me thinking about what is success. And you know, I, I do think happiness is the is the root of everything. Because if it doesn't make you happy, why are you doing yeah. it? And if if it's well paid but you're not happy, why are you doing it? And you know, maybe you're saving up money so you can retire early, but you know that means you have to sacrifice your whole life just for early retirement and you might keel over and die the year after and often people who work hard do so you know that's not a good plan and so I've thought a lot about this and I think in the end it boils down to enjoying and achieving yes and I think some people enjoy themselves but they don't achieve anything and that bugs them in the end yeah and I think a lot of people the kind of people you interview for this podcast are really high achievers uh but it's really important to enjoy it as enjoy well. Enjoy the moment. And, and I think a lot of them do enjoy themselves as well. Yeah. But you've got if you're going to achieve, you've got to remember to enjoy it as well. Um and it sort of goes back to my Everest thing, because ideally you would enjoy it at the time and get a sense <laughs> of achievement afterwards. Um and if you can do both, that's really that's good. Right? Yeah. Definition. Of sense. Yeah. So I think to enjoy and achieve, and and so enjoyment is really about the present, and achievement is about the future. And because you have to do things now that you may not want to do in order to achieve in the future. You have to come out of your comfort zone, you have to learn new things, Yeah. get a coach to achieve in the future. So and I think all we've got is the present and the future because the past is gone. We can't change that. But we can change the present and we can change the future. So enjoy and achieve. And and ideally, you would do both of those at home and at work, because I think a lot of people's plan is to achieve at work and enjoy themselves at home. Yeah. You know, party on Friday night, Saturday night or whatever. But I don't think that's enough. Yeah. You know, I, I want to enjoy work as well as achieve. I, you've got to find a job you enjoy. The search must go on. I'm lucky to have found something yeah. I enjoy after a lot of searching. Yeah. But you've got to keep searching. So you've got to enjoy both. And then ideally you would achieve at both as well. So not only achieving at work, but you'd achieve stuff in your personal life things that you want to do and and maybe driving across India will give you a sense of achievement or building your own shed or coaching a kid's football team you know whatever you want to do but you've got to get a feeling of achievement and that comes back to goals of course because your goals are what do you want to achieve at home and at work and also what do you want to do that makes you happy at home and at work and if you write all that down it will happen
0: I agree. And I actually think it's a really, you know, my own personal definition of success is around that holistic success, which is that balance between business, work, career success and personal success. And you see too many people and, you know, being there myself at times when you'd score an eight out of 10, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 personally and two out of 10 in business or vice versa. Yeah. And it's crap. It doesn't feel right. No. But if they're both scoring
1: sevens. The dangerous one is where you sacrifice your home life for your work. Yeah. And so uh, many
0: people do do
1: that. Yeah, absolutely. And you can get drawn into the idea of it's only temporary and, yeah. you know, I've got to have my career. I can make and, it up tomorrow. Yeah, and of course you never can. You never get that time back. You look at pictures yeah. of your kids and it's just gone in a flash when they were little, gone. Yeah. Um And so... You're right. It's somehow to be at seven for both. Yeah. Or, or even nine yeah, for both. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the for a golden So hurry. Yeah. So enjoy and achieve at home and at work. And that's what time management's about, but it's what happiness is about. It's, yeah. it's the meaning that's the meaning of life.
0: Yeah. I think. Perfect. What a great way to end the podcast. Chris, <laughs> if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go?
1: Oh, uh, just go to ChrisCroft.com. ChrisCroft.com. Put me into Google, ChrisCroft. I'm all over Google. If if they want to be a trainer, contact me. I, I might be able to help coach them to be a trainer. Um, or if they just want a training course, I'm still doing some of those. Brilliant. Um, yeah, just go to ChrisCroft.com and have a look at my blog because I'm always writing new stuff. Every few days I put something else and my blog is very... Eclectic, very weird and wonderful. Everything is, that's in my head is gradually being written to <laughs> my, my blog. blog. Check that oh, right out uh, on Chris. Save the com. world, yeah.
0: right, Chris? It's been brilliant to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you for being a
1: great guest. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope
0: you all took away some interesting content, thoughts, ideas, something practical to implement, either in your personal of business life as a result of that podcast. The episode was slightly longer than normal, but with Chris providing such great content, we didn't want to edit it down in any way. Chris clearly has a gift for enlivening topics and concepts with his enthusiasm and humour. It's no wonder he's built such a successful training company. There are so many things I liked about this podcast, especially the conversations around the importance of setting yourself goals and seeking out a profession you truly enjoy. And how putting your focus into achieving success in both your personal and professional life is key to a meaningful existence. These, of course, are concepts that are core to what Evolve is all about. So if you want to subscribe to our newsletter, if you want to find out more about Evolve, if you want more insightful content, details of forthcoming webinars and events, then please do go and register your details at EvolveMembers.com. And if you are local to the Poole Bournemouth area, don't forget that we'll soon be launching our co-working space in Ashley Cross in Poole. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if so, please do rate, review and subscribe for future episodes. I look forward to you joining me again next week. Thank you.